This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Priyanka Shankar. From rhinos destroying crops in Nepal to wolves and bears attacking livestock and people in Europe and the U.S., I saw TV coverage of several bear attacks all in one week recently in the United States. The conflict between humans and wildlife is a problem which continues to persist. Is there a way for people and wildlife to coexist more peacefully? On today's episode, correspondent Priyanka Shankar takes us on a safari to India first and then later to the U.S. to explore the main reasons behind human-wildlife conflicts, focusing on how people can learn to coexist better with animals. In this episode, we first talk with Gerard Martin, a conservationist based in South India. Now, he focuses on trying to educate people there, especially young children, on how to coexist with snakes. Death due to snake bites is a very big problem in India, which also, of course, gives a negative perception to the animal. But Gerard is trying to change that. Later, we'll travel back to the United States and visit the forests and valleys of the Sierra Nevada and talk with Petros Chrysippus. He's established predator monitoring tools and non-lethal deterrent measures to ensure livestock and wildlife coexist safely with humans. Lastly, we'll hear from Paula Pebsworth, a primatologist who has worked on mitigating human-wildlife conflict between primates and humans in many parts of the world and is currently based in Texas. Paula's focus is to find solutions for humans and wild animals to coexist and also addresses the language and narratives that policymakers, the media, researchers, conservationists, etc. could be using while educating people about human-wildlife conflict. Here's our correspondent, Priyanka Shankar. Every time a mosquito buzzes around you, or a snake slithers into your garden, or if you live by a forest and find a big bear eating from your trash can, it is but natural to feel like your space has been invaded. As humans, we instantly find a way to ward off these animals. According to one of the world's leading conservation organizations, World Wildlife Fund, as human populations expand, the demand for land and resources also increases. This has led to people and wildlife interacting and competing for resources, in turn leading to conflicts. But is there a way to coexist with animals? In India, where human-snake conflicts are common, wildlife conservationist Gerard Martin popularly known as Jerry Martin in the country, has been trying to find solutions to mitigate this conflict. Jerry, you've been working with snakes and other reptiles in India and around the world for many years now. What are some of the main reasons for human-snake conflicts in India? So snake bite in India, as long as we can remember, as long as it's been recorded, has been a massive issue. During the British rule, there have been a lot of uh, records and gazettes that have shown that snakebite has always been a big issue, even uh, for the British Army, for British troops when they were uh, colonizing India, definitely amongst uh, the labor force. And uh, ever since independence, when India started uh, focusing a lot on agriculture, it's, it's been a huge problem since then as well. It continues to be a huge problem with agricultural communities because they work with their hands here. Most of our agriculture is not mechanized. Um, so people work in the fields, you know, they, they very often are barefoot and they work with their hands. 
And in these fields are a lot of venomous snakes. So, I mean, snake bite is just very, very prolific and frequent. Agriculture is a big problem for a lot of uh, the conflict because, uh, well, if you look at snakes, for sure, because it brings humans and snakes into very close proximity. But even animals like wild boar or elephant come into fields to feed. And it's a big issue there. But with things like tigers and leopard, we have such a high population, human population, that there is very little space and resource left for to give enough room to, to wildlife as well. There's a very high amount of, of conflict around protected areas as well, because animals that are doing well inside protected areas start spilling out into the neighboring and adjoining spaces. And that's when conflict arises as well. So historically, India didn't have this kind of, you know, uh, sacrosanct protected area and everything else gets used. There was a lot of coexistence. And with coexistence comes uh, one, the ability and wherewithal to live with other animals, even other communities. Um, but um, when it when separation begins to happen, so if there's a very set protected area and everything else is fair game to, you know, develop or, or, or plant up or, or use for whatever resource, that's when, you know, along the edges, conflict really starts spiking. That's a really interesting point. But do you think these protected zones that are popping up around the world are counterproductive when it comes to mitigating human-wildlife conflict? So if you look at it historically, yes, there was some conflict, but people and communities were able to and knew that they had to live with whatever animals there were around. So there were elephants around and, and elephants were, you know, given fair room uh, to move around and they were allowed to do that. There were snakes around and people knew that they had to be careful. Uh, so growing up, when I was a child, I actually have seen an old woman sweep a cobra out of her house, right? And I know a grandson and he goes into orbit when he sees the smallest of, you know, even non-venomous snakes. So it's because we've had that separation that we're not comfortable with it anymore. Uh, the moment we start separating things and allocating spaces or zones or time or anything, it becomes harder for both sides to live equally. I have a lot of friends who live amongst wildlife. And I mean, a, a very dear friend of mine sits and has his evening coffee uh, with elephants right outside his porch. And they'll be feeding. And that's not a problem at all. They, they know that he is safe and he knows that uh, and he won't trouble them at all. So there is no conflict there. Just because there are humans and wild animals in the same space, it doesn't mean there has to be conflict. Besides humans, there's also wildlife coming in contact with cattle or even people's pets. For example, I remember coming to your house as a teenager to camp and learn how to handle snakes. Now, your house was also near a national park and I remember you had dogs, the village near your house, the people have cattle. And I wondered if these animals had been attacked by snakes. So cattle is a problem from actually two points of view. So from the human standpoint, cattle get taken by large predators. The forest department here compensates for cattle uh, being taken, but it's, it's sort of like a band-aid. From the wildlife standpoint, cattle carry a lot of diseases that cattle are vaccinated against but might still carry, and those uh, diseases spread to wildlife. Uh, things like dogs and cats, are, a, especially feral dogs and cats, 
are a huge issue when it comes to, to wildlife. For us, we have leopard around our property every now and then, but the dogs are kept close to the house and we have lost a dog to a leopard, but that just goes with the territory, so to speak. So if we wanted them to be safe, we just need to keep them up on our porch or closer to the building at night and, and that's fine. And they are enclosed within a fence, so uh, they can't go out and attack any wildlife either. As far as the, as the rural folk go here, the agricultural community, human-snake conflict is by far the biggest conflict that there is. But other wildlife like wild boar, are, uh, they're quite a problem if you're growing crops because they just destroy everything, uh, even stuff that they don't eat. And it becomes difficult for a farmer who's you know, struggling to put three square meals on the table to be able to cope with that kind of loss. So th there needs to be some alternative. And one of the things that we're looking at is actually finding other ways for people to, to echo livelihood. This is a beautiful place. It's around the Nagarhole Tiger Reserve. And instead of there being conflict, if having wildlife on one's property would actually benefit them, then we would immediately negate conflict. And we're, we're trying to look at those kind of avenues. So ecotourism, uh, growing mushrooms, for example, uh, handicrafts, all these other things where there wouldn't be conflict is something that we're trying hard to actually bring about. You've been doing a lot of work in educating people about human-snake conflicts. Can you tell us a little bit more about all the conservation projects you've been working on recently to mitigate human-wildlife conflicts? Most of our initiatives actually stem from the belief that when people are comfortable with animals, conflict might even just vanish altogether. And uh, snakes, unfortunately, worldwide have, have a really rotten deal because there's so much myth and superstition and, and misconception that, is, that surrounds them that it would just be much, much easier if people knew that these snakes were just like uh, any other animal and knew that snakes really wanted to have nothing to do with us. There is not a snake, not a dangerous snake, a venomous snake on the planet that would ever chase us. There are some snakes that have eaten humans, but uh, they're the really large, maybe three or four species that none of us ever get to see. So no snake really wants to have anything to do with a human. And uh, when we work with people, even people here, when we uh, we have a team that goes out and um, helps people that have snakes in their houses or in their fields. And all we do is we, we remove the snake from the situation. We don't move it from the location at all. So if the snake is right in the way of someone harvesting a field, we chase it away. Uh, if it's um, And it, it moves on on its own. If it's inside a house, we let it go outside the house. And people are actually surprisingly... Um, and very wonderfully understanding of this because moving a snake away or killing a snake doesn't work for the people either because if you kept removing snakes by either removing the snake alive or killing it from a location, that space and those resources that that snake was using will grow and that will become more inviting for other snakes to come in. So the best thing to do is to allow for a balance to set and people are beginning to see that around here uh, quite well and much to their credit despite the incredible fear that they have of of snakes the local community here has been very very accommodating and understanding and willing to give it a shot to the extent that they allowed us to release russell's vipers which is which are you know possibly the snake 
responsible for the mo most number of deaths and uh, and morbidity so loss of limb and kidney failure certainly in, in india but possibly in the world they're allowing us to let that snake go back in their fields and we we radio track the snakes we find what they like and we're ad advising the people about what best to do to avoid interaction and conflict and um, people are really giving it a shot despite their fear fear is something which doesn't go away easily because though i came to your camps and learned how to handle snakes till date i'm still quite afraid of them and i know many people are scared of snakes but do you think these creatures have a negative image because of the way the media for example portrays them we have all these wildlife channels on the television or even documentaries online that often portray snakes as the world's deadliest creatures do you think this sort of narrative plays a role in making people instantly kill a snake as soon as they see one it does uh, it plays a huge role in that unfortunately wildlife documentary filmmaking has changed from documentary filmmaking to mere television and it's entertainment that's all it is and by and large it um, it focuses on the presenter so it it's not about how amazing these animals are and how little they actually want to do uh, you know with us it's about the presenter and how cool he or she is uh, for being able to handle this otherwise you know really dangerous snake the truth is the only reason we can actually handle any of us can handle a venomous snake is because they don't really want to bite us uh if they did if snakes wanted to bite us if you see how incredibly fast even a spectacle cobra or a king cobra or a black mamba uh, or any of these snakes can be when they're chasing their prey there is not a human on the planet that could get out of the way or ward that snake off the reason we're able to handle them is because while they're being defensive they're not saying i want to bite and kill this person because if they were they would um and all they're doing is being defensive and sort of very often they'll do mock strikes or they'll you know gape and uh, or or rattle their rattles um you know give us a lot of warning before they actually get into strike mode it really is unfair to the animals and it, it it's it's an exploitation of animals to do that to say you know look at me i'm so cool i can handle this animal and what we're doing is really putting those animals through a lot of stress if if you catch a wild snake its immediate re response is not to strike its immediate response is to get away in order to get all these visuals of the snake striking and all those kind of things you have to restrain the snake and really push its limits before it starts striking and you get all those scary visuals and popular cinema doesn't help either so the whole uh, all over the world popular cinema uses snakes as um, as something sinister and terrifying uh, but in fact when I, when i work with children and we sit and we watch say uh, checker keelback water snakes in our ponds or you know a rat snake trying to to capture its prey or even a cobra or a king cobra do what it it does normally it, it's such a wonderful thing and there's so much amazing um there are so many amazing aspects to these animals that if we just gave them a chance we'd see them as much much different animals than than we see them today on that note within india and also globally is there a region where people have learned to coexist with snakes there are a few places there are some places that are historically at peace um so there's one place in eastern india uh, in a place called west bengal 
where the community there, the village community there, uh, worship a deity called Janklai Devi. And they believe that she manifests herself in the form of the monosolid cobra, which is a pretty venomous snake. But when I visited there, they were absolutely fine with these snakes being around. And I was able to find dozens of these snakes just around the place and people going about their work completely normally. What was incredible was that the snakes as well didn't see humans as a threat either. They, um, so the snakes, uh, a, a cobra hoods up when it feels threatened. These snakes were not even hooding up when I approached them. They were just absolutely fine, moved out of the way. I saw kids playing with a cobra uh, right next to uh, right next to their their playing field. Um, I saw a, a lady pull out hay from a haystack, and there was a cobra like not more than a couple of meters from her, and she was absolutely fine. So it was really really interesting. There's also a place in the United States uh, where a researcher has been working with uh, the folks around there on rattlesnakes, and and they helped him. Um, better understand the rattlesnakes and they've become completely fine with rattlesnakes as well and conflict has dropped tremendously i can't remember exactly where it is but uh there is in fact even a place in the united states where a researcher has been working for over two and a half decades on rattlesnakes and the community there has been helping him with his, his research and have grown quite um fond i suppose of the rattlesnakes and so there's no conflict there anymore and you know 20 something years later he's still continuing his research. The community is completely at peace with rattlesnakes. And there are numerous examples like this around the world where people do live completely at peace with snakes being around them. So if it's possible for them, it's possible for everyone else. And one of the big things that is missing in conflict mitigation and in conservation in general is a sense of empathy. And to be able to put oneself into for example, the shoes of a person who's living alongside elephants or even the elephants themselves and see that, you know, the, the traumas of conflict are affecting both sides. And without conflict, both sides would actually be much better. So it's in our and the our opponent's best interests to sort of just figure it out and come to terms with how we can coexist and live peacefully. As fluffy as that sounds, that's the best way forward for all of us. That was Gerard Martin, a conservationist in India, who focuses on conservation and is also trying to educate people, especially young children there, on how to coexist with snakes. You can hear Priyanka Shankar's entire interview with him at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. We're looking for more peaceful coexistence between wildlife and humans on today's edition of the show. We'll have more right after this short break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today with correspondent Priyanka Shankar. From the Indian subcontinent, our safari now circles back to the United States, to the forests and valleys of the Sierra Nevada, where our next guest, Petros Chrysophis, is a wildlife conservationist. He speaks about how he's established predator monitoring tools and non-lethal deterrent measures to ensure that livestock and wildlife coexist more safely. Again, it's Priyanka Shankar, our correspondent. Petros, while human-wildlife conflict is common around the world, what are some of the main reasons for it in Sierra Nevada, where you're currently based? So the Central Valley and the Sierra Nevada are basically uh, in the central part of California. The Central Valley spans all across the main part of California. Uh, and in those areas, the main source of conflict is uh, bears, black bears getting into trash cans, uh, black bears getting into different sorts of food, uh, and then also coyotes, mountain lions, black bears, bobcats, and sometimes gray foxes are getting into livestock and killing livestock or uh, destroying apiaries, so beehives and bee operations as well. The, the primary reason for it right now is that, you know, you have more and more human activity in those areas, either through development or through more people utilizing the land for hiking, hunting, whatever like that. And you have more people that are moving into mountain towns you also have, you know, in terms of the Central Valley itself, you have a lot of the land, a lot of the conflict there is through development. So um, a lot of it, a lot of the land can only be used for agricultural development, really, there isn't much, um, much else to do in terms of like what you would do with it. Um, and so that intersection of either using that land for agriculture, or using it for uh, development means that at some point these animals are going to clash with uh, humans in in some way. In terms of the valley itself, the kid foxes themselves aren't necessarily, uh, they're one of the smallest foxes you can find. They weigh upwards of like five pounds. So they're very small, but their presence, you know, because they are protected, that is a source of conflict in and of itself. So a, a company that buys land and wants to develop something in that land, if there are kid foxes pre- present, they need to either build around the dens themselves, or if that's not feasible, they need to make new dens, or they need to buy areas, a, a piece of land somewhere else uh, that would, you know, mitigate the disaster that they're causing in that area. Uh, and so all of that legislation is the primary source of conflict there, as opposed to the actual animal itself. Now, with if you go further up into the mountains, into this year in Nevada, obviously, there's a lot of things that you know, cause conflict. So primarily number one now is, you know, uh, livestock grazing. So whether it is on public or private land, right, you have livestock that, you know, graze along the Sierra Nevada. And we tend to think that, okay, these animals are are just going to exist in this space. Uh, but the reality is that they do interact with wildlife a lot. And so uh, when those interactions happen, inevitably, an animal is going to kill a livestock. And that's where you know, a, a lot of the problems occur. And also, lately, at least, you see it more and more as a, an uptick of people moving into these rural areas. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It is just like a lot of people are not very savvy in terms of wildlife. So some of these things like leaving your trash out unprotected, or not getting bear proof trash cans or stuff like that, that also leads to conflict. And then, you know, with the recent fires in California, 
we lose a lot of habitat, at least temporarily, we lose a lot of habitat for these animals and that pushes them out to areas that they didn't frequent before. And so people are seeing more and more mountain lions on their, you know, ring cameras or anything like that on their doorbell cameras or bears, more bears and stuff like that. And that's partially because the land that they used to use has burned down. So they're moving to try and find new sources of food, at least until, you know, eventually that land grows back. What exactly happens when a conflict takes place? If we're looking at bears coming into a neighborhood and eating from trash cans or coyotes attacking cattle, do people instantly kill these animals as soon as they see them? There's a few ways in which it's dealt. Um, there is the the official like route that you can go through the state wildlife uh, department, right? And then there, there's various ways to do it. So, for example, if we're talking about black bears, right, what we call a nuisance black bear, so black bear that's getting into trash or interacting negatively with uh, livestock or anything like that, uh, sometimes the department will try and relocate them. Sometimes uh, they'll try hazing it. And then, you know, if it, if it becomes too much of a problem, then they'll obviously, you know, uh, kill the animal. But that that's the um, the state process, right? In terms of me, which I'm, I'm independent, so I'm not associated with the state, uh, if people call me, then usually what I do is I try various different techniques to keep the bear out of the trash. So fencing the trash or using electronic devices that emit noises and lights that scare them, buying bear-proof trash cans and that stuff. Um, so we try and go down those non-lethal routes uh, as much as we can, and then we kind of move on from there. We devise different scenarios and how, you know, the the landowner or the whoever is you know the the person that is in conflict with the bear can respond to the bear and you know if if all else doesn't work then you know i direct them to the state process so they can either you know continue to deal deal with it in terms of the state or they can um have someone come over and either relocate the bear or shoot the bear or depending on how that goes uh for the image of the animals themselves i think it kind of varies i think it like just looking on the social media aspect of things over the past few years um i don't know if there's a, a necessarily negative image for some animals but there's always there's definitely a negative image for others so for example just noticing you know over the past few years there's definitely a lot more uh negative talks about with mountain lions and negative talks about coyotes right and about how uh coyotes are are starting to like you know be more bold or more brazen and are starting to interact with humans in a more negative way more often uh and you'll you always hear these conversations about mountain lions and about how um they're waiting to kill your children or they're waiting to like you know kill your dogs and stuff like that and especially with dogs those interactions do happen but i think it's definitely been one of those things where it's a lot more um blown out of proportion than it necessarily is so a lot of the times when you have situations like, you know, with mountain lions, uh, some people, for example, see mountain lions go through their uh, doorbell cameras, right? And they might see the same mountain lion go through that a couple of times and instantly that's like a negative, even though that's not, that's just wildlife doing its thing, right? Moving around uh, for those people. And I think that that exposure to the outside world now more often than not has created this like idea that wildlife is like more into trying to get you and kill you or harm your animals or stuff like that uh as opposed to just wildlife being you know 
wild and doing its thing. But by being wild and doing their thing, do they become deadly or feared creatures? Or is it just media narratives which give them that tag? Yeah, I think it's definitely one of those things that contributes to this. I think uh, the, you know, the shows that the TV shows that you see that kind of like basically push like and I like those informational shows, right? Sometimes it's really cool to be able to see what kind of like what kind of damage an animal could do or like how they hunt or stuff like that. But I think it's uh, it's a a double-edged sword so you you get some of the information that some of us might perceive to be like oh this is really cool i didn't know that the bite force of this animal is so strong or that this animal hunts the same way but on the other hand i think if you have if you are predisposed to having a negative idea about an animal these shows just reinforce it right um and i think i think those probably do do a lot of damage and i think it's definitely in the snake world and in the shark world it's definitely hurts more than the mammal world because you know as much as i hate to say it uh, bears mountain lions wolves coyotes all of them are fairly charismatic species so even if you do have these like tidbit information about how they hunt and about how much damage they do it's more likely not going to have as much negative impact as in with sharks and snakes uh, lizards spiders all that kind of stuff because they are already less charismatic and therefore um, more likely people having a negative uh, predisposition towards them. I think one of the things that definitely does not help at all is the the circulation of various like sensational videos. Um, you know, sometimes I don't know if it's a slow news day or I don't know if it's just because it, it causes, you know, we do measure, I guess you measure your success as a, as a journalist now in the number of clicks and hits and spreads that your article gets right yeah yes yeah. yeah so um sometimes you know i see people like um taking these videos that are wildly out of context and posting them on news page, like pages and stuff like that and actually it, it's somewhat like i wouldn't say insulting but somewhat infuriating as a, as a biologist a wildlife or other right to see these videos spread out and then say well why why did no one contact me to clarify about what this video is exactly right like really obviously like something that's going to get circulation on that note could you tell me a little bit more about how you and your team are trying to mitigate the conflict between humans and animals in the region that you're in right now it's just me uh, i do have like some seasonal people that that i work with but it, it's primarily just me so there is there's a couple of ways that you know you, you tackle such a situation so obviously if it's a, a livestock depredation or if it's a, a you know an animal getting uh, into conflict with a human over a particular source of conflict so water food or you know anything like that uh the first things first is to secure that uh source uh in terms of ranchers i try and provide tools and education about how to you know how to protect your animals with a lot of minimal cost right and how to protect them easily so there i have device there's devices that are specialized to deter these animals there is you know there are other ranchers that i know that they can talk to and you know communicate and share ideas as well and so that's step number one is trying to keep the the source of conflict secure from the animals right because that immediately alleviates some of the pressure that a human might feel and some of the fear that a human might feel and then we move on from there into like you know um creating backup plans about how to keep them protected long term but also you know 
I, I do do some education. I do do some empowerment. I, I let them know like, hey, let me teach you how to monitor for these animals successfully, right? And in a way that's not invasive and it doesn't take a lot of time. Or let me show you why, you know, this animal is doing what it's doing. And I think that kind of education, like I call it judgment-free education, right? So I just kind of go like, let's, let's talk about this animal and how it behaves according to what we know through science, right? And I think that kind of education is crucial for long-term because even if you secure these animals, if we're talking about livestock, if any of you secure the livestock and they, they won't get attacked by uh, another animal again, if you still have those negative predispositions to it, then the moment there's another depredation, those feelings come back. Uh, but you want to be able to show, you know, show these animals to the the people that you work with in a much more natural setting and provide context for everything they do. So Petrus, we've been talking about human-wildlife conflict, referring to big animals like bears and coyotes, and they generally come into conflict with humans who live near forests. But in everyday life, for those of us who live in cities, in a more urban setting, we're always dealing with conflict more with creatures like a small mosquito or a bug. Now, how do we deal with this sort of conflict and find a way to coexist with these creatures? I think that's tricky, right? Because that's a, like a, a relative uh, in terms of preference. Like, what do you, where do you draw the line? For example, I know a lot of people are like, I'm happy to have various bugs in my house or whatever, but the moment I see a spider, it's gone, right? Uh, which is, I think, one of the more common ones, or in case of snakes, right, that in, in your backyard and stuff like that. I think there's a lot to be said in terms of understanding that these animals are not necessarily, like, in any way, shape, or form trying to kill you, right? Uh, they're just, you know, they exist in the space, and they're they're trying to make best of what they what they can. Uh, some things, you know, you got to be realistic with with some things. Obviously, if you have cockroaches in your house, and you don't want to have cockroaches in your house, the only way that you can deal with that situation is to remove the cockroaches, right? But I think I like I tell people, especially, you know, in in more zoomed in settings, so like with mice or rats or uh, stuff like that, I think there is there has to be some compromise in terms of where you are okay with the animal existing and where you're not okay with the animal existing. So, you know, if we take rats or mice, for example, in, in the household, people don't want them inside the house, right? So I tell people, okay, let's remove the, the sources of conflict that exist. Let's uh, either trap and relocate the mouse uh, or trap the mouse entirely or, you know, uh, do, do different mitigation measures to make sure the animal doesn't come into the house. But you have to be okay with it being in your backyard because that's, you don't have to be okay with it, I guess, but like that's that's where it's going to exist, right? So understanding that you don't live in this vacuum is very important. Even, even in areas that are like heavily urbanized, where there's not a whole lot of green space, wildlife still exists in some way, shape, or form in case of like, you know, like you said, insects, uh, birds sometimes and stuff like that. So understanding that you cannot detach yourself from the natural world to the point that your house is not going to be influenced by wildlife at all is I think step number one, right? And then there's there's absolutely, in my opinion at least, there's absolutely no shame in having some, you know, some lines. Uh, I don't want 
you know, I don't want people to be that that say that are, you know, wildlife friendly. I don't want those people to say I'm wildlife friendly, so I have mice in my house, right? If you're okay with the mice kicking around, the mouse kicking around here and there, that's fine. But obviously, like, you know, for lack of a better word, infestations of rodents can be a problem to human health, right? Infestations of different bugs can be a problem to human health or, or stuff like that. So obviously, there has to be some lines, either personal or societal wise, that we draw. Uh, and you should be okay with that. But also, you should understand that, yeah, there there's animals here. They're going to exist. They're going to go around and do their thing, right? Uh, a really common example of that is pigeons, for example, in like high-rise buildings and stuff like that, right? Yeah, you can, if you want to try and, and you know, block off your porch from access to pigeons, and if you can't do it, great, but you, you know, you got to understand that they're there. And if there's a hole in your fence or whatever, they're going to get through. They don't understand the concept of your personal space. Or yeah, rather, you shouldn't be annoyed at them. You should just understand that they're they're doing their their animal thing. For me, the end goal here isn't humans loving animals, or or the people that are in conflict. I don't want them to love the animals. I just want to tolerate and understand the animals, right? So you you can you know, on your own free time you can hate that animal as much as you want, uh, but I want you to understand that like you know it doesn't really do anything that it does in any sort of malevolent way it just exists and it the its basic biological drives are to find food to protect its young and to mate right um and to exist as an animal so tolerance is where i want to be that was petros chrysophus a wildlife conservationist in california and you can hear priyanka shankar's entire interview with him at our website peacetalksradio.com more on today's topic about wildlife and humans coexisting more peacefully right after a quick break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today with correspondent Priyanka Shankar. Got a question about today's episode or anything that you've heard on Peace Talks Radio? You can write us at info at peacetalksradio.com. That's info at peacetalksradio.com. And find all of our episodes dating back to 2002 at our website, too. While conservationists have been trying to educate people about how to coexist with wildlife, policymakers in every country also play a role. Our next guest, Paula Pebsworth, is a primatologist who's worked on mitigating human-wildlife conflict between primates and humans in many parts of the world and is currently based in Texas. Paula's focus is to find solutions for humans and wild animals to coexist 
and also address the language and narratives that policymakers, the media, researchers, conservationists use while educating people about human-wildlife conflict. Here's our correspondent Priyanka Shankar. Paula, what are some of the main causes for human-wildlife conflict around the world? Is it a fight over land? Is it another resource? Is it for food? It's a combination of things. And I will say that it's um, primarily driven by human behavior. Uh, it is, it's a conflict over resources. Anytime when you talk about, you know, conflict, it is, um, you know, these shared resources that we are, are using. And so oftentimes they become shared because we've cut down uh, forests. So there's deforestation. Um, that is a cause of conflict. You know, how we dispose of our trash is a conflict. All of those areas that you can think of, that's what draws um, humans and primates into the same space. And in a perfect world, I mean, I love them and I would move to a space where I could observe them and see them in their natural habitat. But for, for wildlife, it is always best if our home ranges don't overlap, that humans have their space and wildlife has their space. When our home ranges, I'll say, overlap, is when they often become injured. When animals are coming into human spaces, they're often hit by cars, they're shot by people, they're persecuted. All of these negative interactions occur. There's really very few positive interactions when our, our home ranges overlap. I know that people do enjoy spending time with them and seeing them. And I think that we can find places where we can do that unobtrusively. But gosh, you know, for them to be in an urban setting or at the urban edge, it's very, very detrimental to them. Paula, from the time you started your work as a primatologist, do you feel that human wildlife conflict has become worse? Or if we go back in time... Was there one conflict that really stood out to you? I don't know when it started, but I will say that if you look at uh, the number of peer-reviewed journal articles that have been published on human-wildlife conflict, they have exploded within the last 10 years, 10, 15 years. And I think that we've just become more mindful of it. Um, I think that humans have always had conflict with wildlife I think that there was a time when we were way more tolerant of wildlife, but you know, as we have changed and we have expanded our home ranges, so to speak, uh, we come into more conflict with wildlife. Um, when I was uh, first working with chimpanzees in Uganda, I did know about conflict, human human primate conflict. Baboons are particularly difficult to work with. And I'm, I'll tell you that I'm very mindful of the words I use and we need to be, words matter. And so just like you were talking about, they don't know their space, a space isn't theirs. They're only eating, they're only foraging. And to use words like rating, I don't think is helpful. So I won't say that they're crop rating. When they're crop foraging, uh, they don't know that those plants don't belong to them. They just think that farmers were particular, you know, wow, these are so neat and tidy. And, you know, it's easy for us to pull the corn off very, very quickly. 
um, I did know about conflict um, between the people and primates. And it's, and it's very contentious around agricultural crops. Oftentimes it's a food resource and our food is way more palatable than theirs. And so, you know, they're just being opportunistic. I saw that more in Uganda that was in the late 90s. And then by the time I was in South Africa, you know, I lived around a lot of farmers and I heard firsthand the challenges that they had with Chakma baboons. But I also knew that the area where that these farms were, were always historically baboon sites. The baboons had lived there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it was, you know, people had come in, um, you know, with this idea that, oh gosh, no one's living here. Well, actually somebody was living there. You know, as we've expanded into wild spaces, the conflict has increased. Um, so that's absolutely the case. I find the aspect of language used in conflict mediation really interesting because it can play a role in firing conflicts further or mitigating them entirely. So what sort of language should conservationists, researchers, or even all of us when we talk about human-wildlife conflicts use? If we use neutral terms, which is absolutely what it is, they're just being animals. They're foraging, they're eating, they're not, they're not pirates. I do laugh because it's just like, I know that their job is to sell newspapers or their job is to sell their article. And so they use uh, terms that are eye-catching or, you know, like make someone want to read that article. But I think that when I was talking before about a holistic approach where we modify human behavior, that is one aspect of human behavior that I would like to um, modify. How do we view wildlife behavior? What is, what is it that they're doing? And they're just being animals. And so um, we sort of shift the focus about, oh, you know, it's not about us. It's not about what they're doing to us. They're living their own lives as best they can. And so I do think that journalists have a responsibility to report things accurately and, and help, you know, so that... Um, that conversation is shifted and it's not about conflict anymore. What I'm trying hard to do is think about human wildlife coexistence um, and, and the resolution. I'm trying in, in the things I write to use neutral terms. I, I really hope that the press will, will do the same. Besides using the right terms and narratives, how should policies be shaped to mitigate the conflict? Do you feel policymakers have started doing a good job or is it still being ignored with respect to finding better solutions to mitigate human wildlife conflicts? You know what happens is like you have conflict, it gets a little worse, it gets a little worse and it gets a little worse and you don't do anything about it until it's a crisis. And then it's, you know, all hands on deck and we need to, to, to face this problem. That's human nature. But there are lots of countries that are doing good work around the world. And I'm just going to point out uh, one is Hong Kong. I know that they're a small country, but what they've done in terms of like a multi-pronged approach, they've got an overabundant population of primates. And India has done the same thing. Instead of culling animals, that you reduce their fertility. And so it's, an, it's expensive. 
to start, you know, doing tubectomies or vasectomies on primates. Um, but that's what they're doing. There are other countries doing the same, like Thailand, Japan. They look at the situation and what, and they're thinking about these various mitigation strategies. They're also including education and awareness. It's critical. And it's really critical for us to um, work with children. And so at an early age, you know, how they learn to behave around monkeys or how they other wildlife, how they can be respectful of their space. Um, when I was doing my postdoc in India, we went into the schools and the children were having problems because on their way to school, the monkeys were stealing their lunches. And, you know, monkeys are very smart and um, they see children as like a, um, a good person that they could take from because of their stature. So they are a vulnerable population. And oftentimes women also fall into that category of a vulnerable population. And they so, you know, you work with them. This story actually reminds me of an incident in school where just before an exam, the monkey approached our um, school and took my friend's pencil box. And eventually we just stood under the tree helplessly because we didn't know what to do. We were scared and we had an exam to write. So we just really needed the monkey to give us back the pencil box and we just stood silent there staring at the monkey and then we saw it kind of like look through the box. I think it was searching for food and it realized there was no food in the box. It got bored and just threw the box down. And that kind of made me realize that maybe, you know, it was good that we didn't really like try to harm it and we just stood silently. So maybe such methods actually work, right? When an animal kind of comes into our territory and it doesn't really mean to harm us in any way. It's, um, I find, you know, the, the rhesus macaques are particularly clever. Um, in uh, Hamacho Pradesh, I also did some work there. The monkeys there, now they know, like they can see the value of a smartphone. And so they will take a smartphone and then they're like waiting for the response that they get from people. And then they barter like, you know, somebody is like, okay, I'll give you a banana for, you know, my smartphone. And they're sort of looking at you like, I don't think this is a one banana deal. Um, and so, you know, they, they are taking things that are not even food, but they're holding them until you give them something in return. Seems like a sort of World War negotiation is at play. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think for, for humans, it's like you have to you know, we, we need, we've lost our sense of humor. I know it's like a smartphone is very expensive or if they've stolen a wallet or something, I've seen these videos where the money is just flying out, you know, but when you enter a wild space, you need to be mindful. Like I put my phone away. I put my wallet away. Um, I don't try to take a selfie uh, with, with wildlife, especially monkeys. And so you start educating people. You don't stare at monkeys. Staring is an act of aggression. So these small things, you know, that we learn how to communicate and how to behave in a wild space or with wildlife. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's really, really important. Is this something that you do as a part of your work as well? And how do people respond? Do they still consider primates a nuisance? Because, for example, with snakes, I'm still petrified of them. I did go 
to all these camps with a herpetologist as a child and he taught me how to handle snakes but till date i know that if i see one i'm going to probably scream and want it to get away from me so i'm sure you've had instances where people know a monkey means no harm but they still think it's a nuisance so then how do you handle such cases well um I work I don't really do any work in the United States. I do some volunteer work, but um the work I do is in uh the countries where primates um they they naturally occur. So the current job that I'm working on, I do work with um it's it's again it's like taking a multi-pronged approach where we will be looking at reducing primate um reproduction we will also be altering or modifying human behavior so that they know you know that one of the biggest problems is provisioning uh for whatever reason we have this desire to to care for wildlife and to feed wildlife and so many people around the world they feed wildlife and it causes so much problems um you know just to not provision to not give animals food um when you give them food they mature more quickly they reproduce more often and they re- reproduce for a longer period of time and so you know that's one of the reasons why their populations are exploding but that is people will people do not want to change you can encourage people to not feed monkeys but they still want to we have put up big signs you know don't feed monkeys um and and people still do um they're very stubborn and i don't know what it will take for people to realize you know the consequences of their bad behavior um that is particularly difficult i i do know like colleagues of mine in india they looked at a time where that during covid people weren't moving as much and this is in southern india and so uh nobody was leaving food for the monkeys and the monkeys what happens to them and what they observed was that the monkeys went back into the forest and they you know reluctantly maybe they're eating leaves and they're eating fruits that are good for them and and natural and they're there's doing the job of of dispersing seeds um you know my approach is always it's not there was not just one strategy strategies will vary from country to country from culture to culture and so you absolutely need to work with people and to find out what what strategies they're willing to try i mean uh we offered up a bunch of strategies in india and i realized you know it's a part of their culture is is chasing and guarding and spending the night in their crops and i just don't know that you will ever change them um if there is some way that we can sort of modify that behavior a little bit to make it more effective but to be um respectful of that culture um but in terms of getting people to not feed monkeys or wildlife it's it's really really challenging um i think in the middle east one strategy that they may do is if you feed monkeys you get fined and so you know that's the consequence is some sort of a financial payment maybe they'll stop if they have to pay a big enough fine but um so we'll see about that i know that uh it's against the law in hong kong and they do have a huge fine i don't know how it's enforced um but that enforcement will always be a challenge 
Right. And on that note, Paula, what makes you optimistic about humans and wildlife coexisting? I think that basically people are good. And the more I travel, the more I meet people from all over the world, I think people do have a good heart. Um, and I see the resilience of wildlife and wild populations. Um, despite all of the things that we do, they do persist. And, you know, I'm hopeful that we can educate people, we can raise awareness uh, with social media. There's so many ways to touch people um, and, you know, just to to teach them how to behave and how not to behave. And and I'm really encouraged by our youth um, to, to reach children and to work with children. They don't have the idea that, you know, snakes are bad or scary. I mean, um, my, I have a nice picture of my son when he was about four holding this huge hognose snake. Um, we don't, we're not born into the world with these ideas about, you know, that one animal is bad or one animal is good. And so if we can start working with children at a young age to be respectful of wildlife, I think we have a chance. And there are some excellent organizations. I've um, uh, at one point in time worked with Roots and Shoots, which, which is a, a community service project with the Jane Goodall Institute. And there are more and more organizations coming up like that with working with youth, working with adults um, and teaching us to be better stewards. That was Texas-based primatologist Paula Pebsworth. Look for Priyanka Shankar's entire interview with her at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can find Priyanka's complete interviews with all of our guests. It's where you can go to to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. You can see photos of our guests, read and share transcripts, sign up for our podcast, make a donation to keep the program going into the future, all at peacetalksradio.com. If you'd like to write us with questions or comments, it's info at peacetalksradio.com. That's info at peacetalksradio.com. Support comes from listeners like you. Also from the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund. Support too from KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Priyanka Shankar, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.